Sarah Helkala. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. I'm very sad that the listeners can't have just seen what you did when I said, okay, let's do it. You went snap, snap, snap. Yeah, that's my new. <laughs> You're ready to go. Yeah, ready to go. Hey, you know what I just realized earlier today? This day is. I know it. Yeah, I know. It's September 11th. I completely almost missed that. Like, it's so weird, you know. Are there are there still rituals in New York around I'm this sh- day? I'm sure there will be. I'm sure um, that downtown where the, where the World Trade Centers or Twin Towers used to be, I'm sure those shine those lights and by have you we've all seen those they're so profound and so beautiful. beautiful. A guy I went to high school designed those. Gustave Bonavardi Gustavo Bonavardi. Um um I guess I think he designed those. Um I'm sure that will happen tonight. I'm sure there will be some events going down especially down by the Trade Center. I live right near here. Maybe I'll stop by there later today though it's a busy day. Um it's interesting though Sarah that you almost forgot, and so did I. I mean, I didn't because I'm, I'll tell you why in a minute why I didn't. But that's so hint- interesting how history, even something this unbelievably catastrophic, sort of recedes. We were in the yeah. car. Um, was it? Oh, wow, I'm trying to remember who it was. No, I guess I was in the car with Matt Walter and his daughter, Coco. Was it Coco? I can't remember. We were talking to some young person about 9-11 and they just had like no concept of it at all. Mm. It's just like if someone were talking to us about something big that happened in the Eisenhower era, they'd be like, yeah. Mm. I mean, I think September 11th is a lot bigger than that, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I don't know if there's something sort of comforting about that. I mean, certainly not, I guess, to the families and even to all of us, but also that we do we do go on. We go on, you know, life is for the living. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. Where were you on September 11th? What was going on? I was in Bolivia. Oh, wow. Sarah. Yeah, it was really, really strange. I was traveling in um, South America and uh, I went to one of those internet cafes where, uh, you know, there's like you know, these toothless, you know, keyboards, like the half the keys are missing, you know, you pay like a dollar to check yeah. your email uh, for a second. And I got an email from, from somebody who lived in DC and they were like, we're doing okay. And I was like, good for you. <laughs> so glad to know. And then I checked my next email and it was from my brother who was like, Hey, I just thought you should know this happened. And, wow. and it, and it was like, Oh my God. And, uh, you know, in, so, uh, Bolivia is the same time zone, you know, it's just, it's just to the South. Mm-hmm. So it's the same, same time zone as, as Dallas would be. And so then I, I started to realize what was going on. It was very, very strange to be in South America traveling. Um, during that time, I, I checked myself into, uh, I think I'd been staying in like a $5 a night hostel, you know, where like the shower shocked me. And um, I went to like a $20 a night hotel that had cable. And I just parked myself in front of the cable for the next three days. And uh, I actually ended up coming home. I had planned to stay in South America a lot longer. And it was actually, that was the pivot moment for me 
I didn't really want to be uh, gone. I didn't want to be out of the country. Um, did what were the reactions of the of the locals to to the event? Um, very uh, sympathetic. People knew that you were an American. They were, you know, people would come up to me um, and sort of express sympathy. But it was also, um, you know, and also a lot of a, you would go to bars were the other place that had televisions, you know. So I'd go to certain bars and then you'd see a, a the other American travelers, you know. So there was a, a sense of solidarity, but it was still it's just a very strange time for me, um, obviously. And I was very safe, you know. I mean, this was, it was so strange because I had been traveling in South America and feeling sort of like, you know, you're on these overnight buses, you're, you know, there, there's a certain extent to which you're, my life was much less safe. And all of a sudden I felt incredibly safe, uh, tucked away in South America. And it felt like there was this new uncertainty in, in America that had never existed before in my lifetime. So. Um, well, the, the reason I did remember it was September 11th today, besides I would have remembered in any case, um, is that I wanted to make an announcement. If, if you're listening to this on uh, Monday, September 11th, uh, I'm doing a reading tonight. Uh, here with um, five other readers down in the Lower East Side at a place called PNT Knitwear Bookstore, 180 Orchard Street. Starts at 6.30, and I think it's over by like 7.30. It's, it's going to be quick. I'm going to actually bring some of my books to sign if you want, but the reason I even mention it, because if there's any New Yorkers here that are listening that would like to come in and, and stop by and say hi, that would be great. But also, when I was asked to do it, I kind of asked not once but twice to the organizer, oh, are we reading September 11th themed things? And he's like, no, we're not. I mean, he's like, if you want to, you can, but it's just, we're, we're just here doing some readings, which is yeah. just also interesting because that never would have been the case 20 years ago or even maybe 10 years ago. You know, you would have, it, you, you would have wanted to and almost would have had to, um, but this is just going to be, and I definitely am reading something that is not September 11th <laughs> themed at all. Um, Sorry, what, where were you? You were uh, in the... Oh, I was in Los Angeles. Okay. I was in Los Angeles. Um, my brother's wife at the time, I was a runner back then, and um, he said, hey, uh, Nancy, will you will you take Terry, that's his wife at the time, will you take her on a run? She wants to start running. I'm like, sure. So I picked her up at like, you know, seven in the morning. We ran like a mile and a half because she was not really a runner. And I dropped her back at the house. And as I was leaving her on her doorstep, he opened the door and my brother's hands were shaking. He, I remember he was trying to do his belt and he could, the belt was going clack, 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 because he couldn't stop shaking. He said, they just attacked New York. I was like, wait, what? And I lived only about 10 blocks away, and I, I went home. Oh, I looked. I stood in front of his television for a little while, and the towers, oh, God, I, I can't. I'm going to get overcome here. Um, the towers were on fire, of course. Both planes had hit at that point. And I ran home, and my husband opened the door, and he said, the tower just came down. And I said, no, no, it didn't. I just saw it on Chris's. It didn't, it had come down in that time. And um, it was, you know, it, it's, it's I'm, I'm, my whole body is just reacting right now. It was so dislocating and it was morning. And I was like, my, do I take my daughter to school? And I called and they, they said, no, they bring them if you want, but don't, if you don't want to. And I didn't, we kept her home. And um, after a couple of hours, I was like, I'm going to go give blood. 
and I went out to the Red Cross, which I do anyway with some regularity or did. And I asked them, I said, is everybody coming in here to do that? And she said, no, not yet. And then, of course, people did because you feel so helpless. Boy, did I feel helpless um, being in Los Angeles as a New Yorker. Um, I just wanted to be back here so badly. It felt like I needed to be here to do what I could. My father lived right across the river from the towers in Brooklyn Heights. He was shaving um, as it was happening. He was watching it. He, interestingly, had an opposite reaction. His, he got in his car and drove away. He went to North Carolina where his wife, he and his wife had a home, and she was down there. And then my best girlfriend, Sarah, another Sarah. I know, Sarah. I know there aren't it's any okay. other Sarahs. I'm over it. It's okay. okay. Now that's, it's been happening all my life. <laughs> um, she's a production designer on film, and she was flying in from New York that day, uh, that morning. And I was, of course, petrified. I got a message that she wasn't. But what she did was she was on the way to the airport when the planes hit. And she could see it. Like she could see the smoke out of the back of her cab window. And she got to the airport and she just rented a car and drove out to Long Island and, and spent it out there. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I did know three people that, that died that day. Um, one guy I used to work for, one guy I used to work with because my dad was a stockbroker and like I had like, you know, college summer jobs working on the stock exchange and one guy who was on the um, U.S. men's lacrosse team, which my uncle was the coach for and I had toured around Europe with them when I was 17, Eamon McEnany and Eamon had been one of the people during the, when the World Trade Centers were, bo- World Trade Centers were bombed years earlier who had led many people quite heroically and written about to safety, but he, he was not able to get out that day. So he did die that day. And um, he was out, there's some really beautiful articles about him that were in the times and I will, I will find one and definitely put it in the show notes. So that's September 11th. Um, 22 years later. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, um, we should have our, we should have our listeners, um, we have wonderful we have wonderful listeners and there's really great comments on the comment section. So if you want to chime in there where you were, we'll be happy to hear it. And also since I always forget to do this later on, I always remember to do this when it's only the paid subscribers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, please become a paid subscriber. We'd love to have you. And also um, go and rate and review us over on Apple. I guess that's uh, Apple Podcast. That's a thing that you're supposed to do. Give us a five-star review. You, we know you want to anyway. So, um, so Sarah, we've had what you and I have been calling just some, um, what seems to be some interesting uh, rebalancing of the scales or some kind of weird justice happening. Mm -hmm. Weird might be the wrong word, but things that you and I have noticed in the past week or so that struck us and we wanted to, um, we wanted to talk about them. So you want to, you want to start us off? Sure. Well, like the big, one of the big stories over the weekend was that Danny Masterson was uh, sentenced. Um, he had been found guilty of two counts of rape uh, or a few months ago, but it feels like it didn't really it didn't really hit or something until this sentencing happened. And then there's been a lot of hubbub on the internet about it, uh, in part because of some of the victim impact statements that were released um, 
that had been written in in between his guilty verdict and the sentencing, including um, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. We should just quickly remind people who don't know who Danny Masterson is. Danny Masterson was one of the stars of the TV show, That 70s Show, which is from more than 20 years ago. Great show. We loved it. We watched it as a family. I thought it was super fun. I don't know how much he's done since then. Um, maybe you do. Um, but that that's why he's really notable. And he's also extremely notable because he is a Scientologist. And as anyone that follows Scientology knows, they historically have banded together to protect their own. So, okay. Yeah, and Scientology becomes a big part of this story. I mean, I think, you know, as much as the defense tried to keep that out of the trial, you know, the the role that Scientology played along the way in this in this story, I think, contributes to the the very heavy sentence that he got, you know, because it, it begins to look like there was obstruction and the amount that these women had to go through in order to get this trial. Um, you know, he was sentenced to 30 years to life, which is really heavy. Now, um, there were basically two choices that they had, uh, you know, because he, he was guilty of two counts of rape. So it was 15 years to life on on for either of them. So the only other option was going to be to allow him to serve them concurrently so that it would be 15 years to life. And that just wasn't going to happen in this case. So so he got the, the maximum sentence. And um, yeah, so do you like I... I know we had followed this a little bit, but I didn't know a ton about it. Do you want to hear a little bit more? I do, because you know more about it than I do. But I do want to just, you know, interject one thing. So he went to trial. Okay, so he pleaded not guilty. And I think, you know, if you're looking at 15 years for each of these as 30 years, you if you think you have a case there, you're going to plead not guilty. Now, just as a little aside here, which a lot of people probably know, 98% um, of cases are pled out. That means 98 out of 100 people that are accused of a crime, their lawyers go to them and go, look, you know, you're going to be facing this stuff. But if you plead guilty, you know, it's it's likely that you're going to get a lesser sentence, which is obviously very attractive to people, even if they are guilty, you know, if they're not guilty because... They, they, they don't want to risk it. Anyway, um, I just thought I'd mention that. So, yes, let's hear what, what he was accused of. Yeah, and, and just so you know, like, this case was tried twice because it had right. resulted originally in a hung jury right. back in November. And so they tried it again and, and got a different outcome this time. And I'll talk a little bit about what was different between the two trials. Um, but this includes three different um, accusations. And uh, first of all, I just want to say that uh, you've already mentioned that, you know, he was a Scientologist. I just want he, he was he was born into Scientology, you know, so his mother is a Hollywood talent agent. And he comes from this acting family. Uh, his his mom was a pretty much a single mom and he was kind of the surrogate parent to the other siblings. And so he ends up on that 70s show um, from 1998 to 2006. And this was a really big this was a really big show. Um, all these these incidents happened between 2000 and 2003. 
and all the women involved were Scientologists at the time. So, um, so yeah, so, so the first of these, uh, allegations, this is, uh, this happens in April, 2003, not first, I'm sorry, this is just the Jane Doe number one. So I'll go in the order of their Jane Doe's. Um, you know, she's a friend of Masterson's. They were not dating at the time. And she ends up at a birthday party at his house. And she says she was given one drink of red wine and got very foggy. Um, and he kind of playfully pushes her in the pool. But at this point, she gets very disoriented and blurry. And there's another guy there and he's like, hey, let me help you. But but Danny inserts himself and is like, no, I'm going to take care of this. And he carries her up the stairs and, you know, he puts his fingers down her throat to make her throw up. And then he's like, oh, you're disgusting. And he puts her in the shower. And at this point, she's going in and out of consciousness. And when she kind of comes to, she finds him, you know, what she now describes as, as raping her. And she pushes a pillow at him to stop. And then he pushes it into her face. And she tries to choke him to get him to stop. And then he chokes her so hard, she thinks she's going to die. Um, it, this element of violence is, I think, really one of the key elements to what ends up getting a, um, a guilty verdict. I mean, I think first the, the element of violence, the, um, and, and potentially drugging these women. Um, you know, she says, you know, she's one drink and she gets very, like she describes this like numbness and disorientation. So um, in this story, he also like has a gun in his nightstand and he brandishes it at one point when he hears a noise outside and is like, shut the fuck up. And it's all very, it's all very creepy and scary. Um, you know, by the way, if you're interested in these cases, the best, you know, one of the best sources for this is a reporter named Tony Ortega. Yep. Yep, a friend of mine, a colleague, used to be in L.A. and then went over and was the editor-in-chief of the Village Voice. And um, I can't remember when he started, like, his Scientology just became his main beat, but it's more than a decade ago. And he is he is the voice. If you're interested in uncovering things that are happening in Scientology, I mean, he's definitely against Scientology and a lot of the things. And he, and I think he has a lot of legs to stand on. How many legs can people have to stand on? A lot. And, um, and he's great. And, uh, yeah, he's definitely a, a good follow if you're interested in this stuff. Yeah. So when I wanted to learn more about these cases, you know, one of the things I did was to go into his, go into his, um, master list of master son story. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he's done, um, he, he wasn't at the most recent trial, but he was at the trial before. And so, you know, because they're very similar, you can see a lot of the, you know, the stories and, and he's basically got transcripts of what's happening in the, in the courtroom. Um, so one of the things he points out is that, you know, when this woman goes, she is again, a Scientologist, when she goes and complains to the church, um, what do they do? They put her through auditing. Um, you have, to explain, her, you have to explain what auditing is. So yeah. this is what he describes as bizarre counseling that asks her to examine her past lives and find what evil things she had done in earlier centuries that would cause her to be a victim in this lifetime. And this counseling cost about $15,000. Right. That she has to pay for. It, which that, I mean, that just yeah. shocks and galls me. Yeah. 
um, and was designed to keep her from going to the police. She did end up going to the police uh, in June. How, how, how long after? Oh, so. June 2004. So okay. it's about a year later. And the reason she does it is because she hears this has happened to someone else. Okay. And so she goes to them, but they decline to move forward with a criminal investigation because that other person isn't going to come forward. Um, the- wait a minute, wait a minute. Because another person isn't willing to come forward, the police are going to not go forward on her case? How does that work? Uh, you know, I... I- I okay. don't know. And what, and by the way, what, you know, one of the implications of this trial is going to be that the LA PD is in, in bed with the Scientologists. I, I, I can't, you know, I lived in LA for a long, long time. I've been in the Scientology center. I worked for this crazy old school screenwriter dude who was a, like just the worst Scientologist in the world. I was constantly like delivering notes and money and packages to the Scientology Center to this woman because he was always in arrears. Um, they're, they're an odd, odd organization full of very odd people. And yes, they of course have their celebrities. And I, I, I would find it hard to believe that the LAPD, which is such a kind of hard-nosed place, would be like, oh yeah, we got to protect these people, but who knows? Maybe. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, I will also say that that 2004, there were different protocols and understanding of rape, and you know, I wonder. Well, anyway, I, I, I don't know. Um, but at this point, you know, she is starting to get things from the church that are saying, you know, if you keep going forward, there might be, you might be labeled a suppressive person. They're doing it in this kind of legally correct way. They're not saying we're going to label you a suppressive person. They're saying like, Hey, you might want to refer to this, you know, this clause in the whatever. Um, so she's starting to get very nervous. Her whole family, her whole life is Scientology. Um, she ends up signing an NDA in 2004 where Masterson pays her $400,000. Whoa. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. That's the thing about Scientology too, is they don't want you to leave. And it's very much like, like cults. I was going to say other cults, but you know, people can think of Scientology as they want to, but you know, you're, you get completely separated from your entire world. If you're born into Scientology, like, then you're not, you're, you're literally, your family is not allowed to talk to you anymore, ever. I'm not saying hers was, but you really are, they make you very dependent and, and to feel so kind of cosseted. And then we're going to cut you loose. And it doesn't just come with like cutting loose and not having all those connections. It comes with also, even if it's sort of invisible, pressure to destroy you. And she yeah. knows that. I mean, anybody that's been in Scientology knows that. It's not just that you're just going to be ignored. You're going to have pressure to, in the industry and everything else, to never become personed again. And this was a sad case because this woman's mother, who was a Scientologist, had gone to the the ethics board and, you know, compl- made a complaint. She had been told very specifically by her daughter what had happened. Um, they have, like, this wasn't admitted into evidence, but I saw it on Tony Ortega's uh, website, um, which was they have 
you know, evidence of like, like Danny Masterson had gone through a couple of, I don't know what they're called. They're like, I don't know if it's auditing or like, but basically, you know, admitting to some of this, you know, and, uh, but the mom wouldn't, wouldn't testify in this case. She had stayed, she's still in the church and the daughter had obviously left it at this point. So it's, it's that's it's heartbreaking. It, that was a that that was a really tough one. Yeah. Um. So, uh, Jane Doe. That one also happens in two thousand and three. Jane Jane Doe two. Jane Doe two. Jane Doe yeah. two. Thank you. Um. So this is a twenty three year old actress who knows again knows Masterson from the Scientology world, and they are like amongst friends at a bar. He like gets her number and texts her a few days later to come over. And, you know, throughout this story, there's a real sense of his kind of commanding behavior. He's like, one day text her and he's like, come over and get my jacuzzi. And she's like, um, ask me on a first date. But she lives nearby. So she ends up coming over and she's continually trying to set boundaries through this. She's like, hey, I'm going to come over. I'm going to have a glass of wine, but I'm not getting in your jacuzzi. Um, he gives her a glass of red wine. And, and according to her, keeps saying, you know, hey, drink it, finish it. And Later, she feels very woozy and numb. I mean, again, very similar story to the last woman we just talked and to. And we should add then, I'm assuming she doesn't know about the last woman's story. No. Not, okay, right, right. Okay. Uh, but that actually, there will that, will that will come into play later because these women around 2017 did get in touch with each other. And there's going to be an allegation that they started to change um, their stories. Change their stories. Um, but, uh, but according to them, what they were really doing was, uh, talking about the extent to which they were getting harassed by Scientologists, because remember, I don't know if you do remember this, there is also a civil case, a civil lawsuit in this case against Danny Masterson and the Scientologists for a lot of the harassment that was going on during this time. Um, against the women? Against the women. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so he says, you know, like, Hey, if if you don't take your clothes off and get in the pool, I'm going to take your clothes off. And, and she's having a hard time remembering how she gets in the jacuzzi, but she does. And they start making out and she's like, listen, I don't want to have sex, but he's like, go upstairs and take a shower. And she does. And this one is where, you know, she keeps saying that she's getting scared of him. She keeps saying no. And then doing what he asks her to do. So in other words, she says, I'm not getting in the pool. He says, get in the pool. And she does. He says, go upstairs. She says, no, she does it anyway. Um, while they're in the shower, he enters her. And, um, and, and then, you know, later on the bed, uh, I'll just, this is just a quote from her. Uh, he flipped me over and just started pounding on me, uh, pounding me. I was trying not to vomit. I was saying no a lot, but it didn't matter to him. I kept trying not to puke on his bed while he was doing it. It was pretty brutal, and it was really horrible the way he was doing it. Um, so, you know, again, so we have this element of it looks like they're, like, these women are not coming over drunk and drinking a lot. They're having one glass. Now, it turns out this, you know, one of the things that comes out in cross-examination is she, this woman had had like a shot before she went over there. Um, and the other, I think, complicating factor for her is that 
she calls him later uh, and says, like, why haven't you called me? Like, she thought this was going to turn into something romantic. Now, what she says now is, look, I I was trying to make sense of this. Like, at least if we were going to start dating or, or you know, right, maybe... Right. Maybe this would, you know, I could, I could make sense of this. She's trying to put this in some kind of box. Um, you know, they did end up, you know, staying up and talking, but, but, you know, she eventually, um, you know, and ends up feeling that, that this was, she, she sees this ultimately as, uh, something that was really messed up. You know, when in Hollywood, obviously, the current one of the currencies is, you know, youth and sex and opportunity and who's successful and who's not. And I have no idea if she went over there because she thought, well, maybe I'm going to be dating. a You know, he's at the top right. of his game here. He's on a weekly hit series. Like maybe, you know, look, people are people are mercenary about getting ahead in Hollywood. You know, maybe she was like, wow. Or maybe she was just flattered. Like he wanted her to come over. Who knows? But once this terrible thing happens, like what are you left with? So maybe she was like, well, maybe we are going to date or maybe I can parlay this into something as opposed to just having it been a horrible thing in my life. You know, maybe it's going to, maybe I can use it for, in air quotes, a positive. Does this make any sense? I mean, I'm trying yep. to put myself in her head, like why you would then call this person. Um, because maybe then you can get to the next square as opposed to just sitting with this sort of this misery. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's how she describes it now. Um, remember, she was twenty three at the time. You know, she's an she's an older woman now. Um, the third one is the one that they ended up in a, in a hung jury. So this didn't. This one, uh, he was not. Th those were the two charges on which she was found guilty. Okay. And so the third one comes from uh, an ex girlfriend. This is actually somebody that had dated him for six years, and she accused him of. Uh, raping her anally while she was unconscious. Um, she had gotten into Scientology because of him. She ended up going to the ethics committee at the Church of Scientology. And she says she was told by an officer, you can't rape someone that you're in a relationship with. Um, oh, and what year is this? <laughs> yeah, it's 2001. So yeah. <laughs> decades before those, after those, those laws are off the book. Right, right. Um, you know, now in the, the, the church of Scientology has said that she never contacted them except to try to get the relationship back together. So this is something where, you know, you, I don't know, I don't know what to say. Um, interestingly, uh, so this, some of the women have identified themselves that this woman has, she's, her name is Christina and she is. I'm married to the singer from the Mars Volta. Do you know that band? No. Okay. Well, they're like a, I don't know if you'd call them like a prog rock band or like an alt rock band. Um, but they're like a big deal. Okay. Um, and that guy is actually also an ex-Scientologist. Um, but, uh, and he's like written a song about this. I think it's called Incurably Innocent is the name of it. Um, but, you know, he used to be in Scientology. Now he's very much a vocal critic in the like Leah Remini mold. Um, but uh, he, like the two of them had a conversation 
several years ago and he was like, look, this is rape. And so she at that point decides to come forward and, you know, around, I don't know if it's 2017 or when it is, but they lift the statute of limitations on a lot of this stuff. Um, so wait a minute, what does that mean? So there had been a statute of limitations of limitations and they got rid of it or they, I think that the statute of limitations, um, for sexual assault has often been like around seven years. Okay. And then they lift that because of the look back law, you know? I don't know the look back law. Oh, uh, so it's, it's a Me Too era law that basically gives you, um, like it, it lifts that statute of limitation. Okay. Well, this is interesting too. So all of this sort of- and By the you know, way, that's, that's also why I think the, the Harvey Weinstein and the Paul Haggis- Okay. Uh, uh, didn't Paul Haggis make a kind of, did he make like an anti-Scientologist film? Or am I I'm making that up? Well, so he's the apostate. You know, he had very vocally left the church. Right. And, um, you know, was the subject of a Larry Wright profile in The New Yorker that was all about- Right, right. Leaving the church. And he claimed that, that you know, that case was retribution. Um, from the church and the if people church. have not either read or listened to uh, going clear by Lawrence Wright it's terrific it's really really good and it really gives you an idea of it's it's really a, a broad lens on Scientology and how it came about and it, it's it's really worth listening. I think I listened to it on audio it's really see I didn't say on tape so oh good for you I'm proud yeah. of you grown yeah, up thank you thank you um, yeah. And so this is the the couple, Christina and her husband, Cedric, are the ones whose two two of their dogs had died. Um, one of them was poisoned and they. Oh. Yeah. And that's part of the case against um, the Scientologists uh, who they believe were taking retribution on them. Uh, in my book, Into the Bridge, uh, one of the people believed that um, her dogs had been poisoned or Someone believed this woman's dogs had been poisoned by someone else in the book because she loved her dogs so much and mm. in a way to sort of like passively hurt her uh, and, and not be uh, and not be accused of it. Um, it said this person poisoned her dogs. I don't know, but I did put it in the book that it could have happened. Yeah. Um, so so these are the cases. They also had a couple of other um, kind of what's called, I think, like bad, bad actor witnesses or something like that. Um, bad, bad faith like bad fit yeah I can't well I can't remember what they're okay, called now, but, but yeah um so you know so again the jury deadlocks last November they try it again and so the question is you know so what's different this time and there's two things that I think were central in getting these guilty verdicts and one is that the judge allowed more testimony about Scientology Scientologists discouraging taking any legal action. Um, and the other one is this issue of drugging. And in the first trial, the women had said in testimony that they felt weak and woozy and had some memory loss, but it wasn't, you know, it was just sort of implied. And in the second trial, prosecutors argued very clearly that he had drugged them. Hello, Smoke Emily Got em listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, bi-weekly episodes with Sarah Hepla. Sarah Hepla, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh, 
interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.